Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Tanya G.K. Bentley is the co-founder of the Health and Human Performance Foundation, alongside Brian McKenzie, who we had in this very podcast in episode 237. The Health and Human Performance Foundation is focused on the scientific understanding of breathing practices, which is something we love here at Mind Body Green. We love breath work. Tanya is an experienced health services researcher with a demonstrated history of health economics and outcomes research in the health policy and life sciences industries. She's a research scientist at the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center and a breathwork facilitator in Los Angeles. She earned her bachelor's of science from Cornell and a master's and PhD in health policy decision sciences from Harvard. Having recently transitioned into mind-body medicine research, Tanya has a specific interest in the effectiveness of active, voluntary breathing practices on health and human performance outcomes. Again, we love breathwork here at Mind Body Green, and it is going to be a fascinating conversation today. Tanya, welcome. Hey, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure, a real honor. Well, it is so great to have you, so great to connect, have heard tremendous things about you from our, our dear mutual friend, Brian McKenzie, who's been on this podcast, and the incredible work you guys are doing at the Health and Human Performance Foundation. So I'm going to start with that. Can you summarize for everyone, what is the Health and Human Performance Foundation? Yeah, thanks for asking. So we are a nonprofit research organization we, we've been in business for just about two years, and we got our nonprofit status just over a year ago, about a year and a quarter ago, and we are specifically doing research. We're doing science that's looking at the effectiveness of different breathing exercises on different aspects of health and well-being. So we're not teaching breathing practices. We're doing the research on it. And what we're, our, our primary populations of interest are, are you can ask me a question. No, okay. Are youth, first responders, and then people with cardiometabolic conditions. So the thing that ties all of these populations together are, is the impact of stress or breathing on stress and stress on breathing and the impact of those on their health and well being. So you're a PhD. You're grounded and rooted in science is very important. So talk a little bit about your background and, and why breath, why breathing, why breath work? You could have gone a zillion different directions to focus on lots of other great causes and, and, and methodologies, if you will, but you're deep in breath. So why, let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So my scientific background is actually nothing to do with the breath, besides the fact that I breathed the whole time that I was doing my PhD, thank goodness. And it's actually not even really to do with the types of studies that we're doing at HHPF, which are really a lot of randomized controlled trials, although we do other kinds of studies as well. My background is actually in health economics and health economic modeling, kind of like the mathematical modeling of different health decisions. And I did that for my entire career after my PhD, both in academia and in the pharmaceutical space. And so what happened is that a few years ago, I kind of quote unquote accidentally got exposed to some different breathing practices and they accidentally changed my life. And I had been kind of in, in thinking about a bit of a career change, but I didn't really know what. 
And when this happened, I just, I just really felt this calling and I'm not a calling kind of person, honestly. Um, I just was like, wow, look, if this changed my life this much, we must be able to do some research and find out more about other ways. Like, how can it change other people's lives? What can change other people's lives? What, how? Why did it change my life? I didn't know any of this. And honestly, what happened is I was at a seminar that Brian McKenzie was leading. And this was all at my my gym where I learned these breathing practices. And he was talking about the impact of breath on health and well-being. And I like to think of myself as a research geek. I kind of raised my hand like, hey, have you ever thought about doing research on this? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. All the time. Let's talk. So we started talking and and that's what led us to starting this foundation. So really breathing for me, I mean, I had this curiosity and I just before before I got my PhD, so let me just say that during my PhD program, I also had I birthed both of my children. So I kind of came out of the PhD program with a wonderful degree and two lovely, amazing young children, and all of my creative ideas had gone out the window. <laughs> now that the kids are a little older and they're teenagers now, I feel like a lot of that creative creativity came back. And so back to the breathing, I really was just so blown away by how much it might be able to help people. And it really brought me back to my kind of pre-PhD idealism where I was much more into the preventive health space and feeling like all of this money is being spent on so many different drugs. And look at this breathing thing. I mean, hello, it's free. And we all can do it anytime, anywhere. And it's so easy to learn. The things that you know changed my life, it was just a few weeks and just a couple of little practices. So, so it's really true to my heart, this whole concept of accessible and scalable kind of quote unquote tools. You could call it a technology if you want, but it's not that don't require any money and any external technology, which is also, you know, why I really wanted to do this as a nonprofit. A lot of people said to me when I started this nonprofit, Hey, why don't you make it a for-profit and you can develop some app and make a lot of money. There's a lot of people doing that, and i really not interested in, yeah, I really want to just help as many people as we can. So I think I have a lot of questions there. I hope that was a uh, No, it was perfect. That you asked. No, it was perfect. And you hit on one of the many reasons I love breath work and its access and affordability. We all breathe. There's right. no technology and it doesn't cost anything. And having people like Brian and James Nestor on this podcast, what I've learned is, wow, the, the impact that breathing has on your overall health and well-being, and even your immune system with COVID being front and center right now, just been blown away. And as we think about health and well-being, the knock on our world is it, it's inaccessible, it's expensive, I don't have the time, I don't have the resources. Right. Breathwork just blows that blows it open in, in, in a profound, awesome way. Right. And so can you talk a little bit about when you were going down this rabbit hole and as you talk about health economics and helping people, what did you discover around you know, one thing Brian says, like, we're all breathing wrong. Like, 
some of the breathing disorders and as we think about like health outcomes and, and like what, what do you discover about breath and how we're doing it and not doing it well? Yeah, right, right. No, it's a great question. I'll start by saying that most people are maybe breathing wrong, but not that wrong. It's not that bad. Um, I don't want people to think like, oh, we're just such a mess. It's, I'm a lost cause. There are some people with what could be considered a true breathing pattern disorder, which I'll talk about in a second. But, you know, in, in general, I think that a lot of people are, quote unquote, breathing wrong because we're just, mm, we're breathing through our mouths most of the time. We're chest breathing instead of diaphragmatic breathing. We're breathing faster than we need to. This is, that's just kind of like a generalization, but that's, those three things point to some of the primary problems that are also so easily fixed. What happens when we do any or all of those is it sends, first of all, it sends a signal to our brains and our bodies that we're in an emergency situation. So technically, not even technically, like, in fact, our mouths are not designed for breathing, our noses are designed for breathing. And so what our mouths are, the reason that we can breathe through our mouths is so that we can get more air in and have better access in a very short time period, when, for example, the bears chasing us. So none of us Probably most people listening to the podcast right now, I would think, because if a bear were chasing them, they're probably not listening to the podcast. Um, You and I are not being chased by a bear right now. I'm breathing through my mouth because I'm talking. Um, Rob Wilson, one of our colleagues, and I I know you know him as well, he likes to talk about when he's presenting all day, where he's breathing through his mouth all day long. And that puts him in this carbon dioxide um, and oxygen deficit And so he takes a lot of extra efforts before and after those times in order to kind of help correct it. So I know I'm kind of sidetracking. So essentially what happens when we're breathing in these ways too quickly, through our mouth all the time, just our upper chest, is it is kind of called like over-breathing. It means that we're breathing more than we need to for our metabolic requirements. And what this does is that we're just breathing out our carbon dioxide all the time. And carbon dioxide is necessary in our bodies, not out here, in our bodies in order for oxygen to be released to our tissues. And this to me, it's called the Bohr effect, B-O-H-R. And it's just this really cool thing. So we need carbon dioxide in our blood. And then what happens is that the oxygen comes along and a carbon dioxide releases the oxygen to our tissues. And so if we're over-breathing and we're exhaling all the CO2 all the time, we don't have enough carbon dioxide in there. So what happens is it leads to a bit of a, an oxygen deficit in our tissues and our organs everywhere. And that can lead to a whole array of problems. Um, On the kind of less severe, so the more severe is something called hyperventilation syndrome. When someone is, hyperventilation is just really meaning over-breathing, so a lot through the mouth and fast breathing. We can intentionally hyperventilate. There are certain breathing practices that actually induce intentional controlled hyperventilation, which is very different from chronic hyperventilation, 
which can cause kind of longer term chronic conditions. So these kind of conditions can range from respiratory conditions to immune response conditions, like you, you mentioned the immune system. At the extreme, there's hypoxia, which is just a very extreme reduced um, oxygen availability to the tissue. Like I said, most people are not at these extreme levels, but it can even for some people, it can lead to nerve problems and just little problems with the extremities and nerve sensations, stress, anxiety. So it's telling our body to stay in an activated, high sympathetic nervous system state. And that can just feed the anxiety now. And a stress might come from something, a problem at work or whatever. But, you know, that, that constant breathing pattern can feed that anxiety and just not allow our bodies to recover properly and then have homeostasis. So you mentioned anxiety and stress and being chased by the bear. And yeah. you guys worked on a study that found people with higher CO2 tolerance had lower in-the-moment anxiety. Well, those with lower CO2 tolerance, so higher versus lower, had higher in the moment yeah. anxiety. Yeah. So how can we strengthen our lungs? And I'm curious, are there specific breath work techniques or lifestyle tips so we can yeah. prime ourselves, if you will, to respond yeah. to in in the moment anxiety when we're being, you know, chased by the proverbial bear, whatever that looks like in our real life. A bad Zoom call. Yeah. Right, 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 right. We all have a lot of proverbial bears in our lives. Um, and I'm not claiming to be someone who doesn't and who that's I, why I love this work so much is because it's just we all like like you said, we all kind of need need various ways to help reduce the stress. So, yeah, that's a great question. Just to clarify for people who aren't familiar with it, tolerance to carbon dioxide or CO2 tolerance is just essentially our ability to deal with more carbon dioxide in our bodies at once, in our bloodstream. And like I said, we actually need more carbon dioxide in our bloodstream in order to have greater access uh, of oxygen to our tissues. So as you said, if we have reduced tolerance to carbon dioxide, that means that we can't have as much carbon dioxide in our blood and therefore our, our tissues are, are less well-fed and more, less well-nourished and Yes, in our study, we showed, now, those of us in this field had firmly believed there's evidence in panic literature that indicates that a reduced tolerance to carbon dioxide is highly associated with, with panic disorder and panic attacks, yet there's no evidence yet in kind of more kind of quote-unquote healthier populations to just with general levels of stress. So... Yeah, so we found that there is there is definitely an association between these two states, higher stress, lower tolerance to CO, uh, carbon dioxide. So to answer your question of how we can manage this, well, we can all improve our tolerance to carbon dioxide very simply. A couple things. One is simply just breathing through our noses as much as we possibly can, besides when we're talking or laughing or sneezing or eating, coughing even when you're when we're working out. Now, it can take a long time to get used to breathing through your nose when working out. It took me about six months, but now I can do it no problem and have the same maximum heart rate as I would breathing through my breathing through my mouth. Some people it might take them just a month to get used to it, some people two years. 
that alone dramatically, breathing through your nose dramatically will improve your tolerance to carbon dioxide. One can also really focus on breathing from the diaphragm and not the upper chest, because again, that allows more carbon dioxide, more oxygen to come in and better gas exchange. Then some other simple things include just slow breathing, especially the exhale. So if we do literally even one minute, if you want it only, if you only have a minute before or after that annoying Zoom call and you can just stand or sit still or lie down and breathe in through your nose and when you breathe out through your nose, just breathe more slowly than you did breathing in. Some people like to count, don't have to count. You just, we can feel when it's slower. Um, and what that does is it slows down the release of carbon dioxide and so it helps our bodies be more used to maintaining carbon dioxide. And then, of course, one can do that kind of exercise for a longer turn, longer, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. I like to do, if I'm doing slow breathing with slower exhales, I like to do it for five or 10 minutes, or I just count kind of on my fingers a certain number of breaths. Mostly, I personally try to avoid counting. It's just so much more relaxing. Yeah, I, 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 when I'm in that moment, if you will, I just, I do the inhale for two, hold, exhale for four, and, and essentially, I, I just hold the exhale longer than the inhale. Yeah. If it's the opposite, not so good. Right. But just. And yeah. It's, and and that, actually, I'll, oh, can I just add one more thing of from your comment? Yeah, that brief pauses at the top and the bottom of the exhale of the breath are also, yeah, super helpful. I try to start with something really simple, like just breathe more slowly when you're exhaling. But if someone's more advanced or they've done that for a while, and yes, like brief pause for a second or two or three or whatever feels right after one inhales and then again after the exhale, very much, it's very relaxing and it definitely helps with CO2 tolerance as well. And what I love so much about the practice and some of the work you guys are doing, which is important work is there's like cutting edge science. It's fascinating and the takeaways are totally accessible. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing, there are a couple of things. I'm going to touch on some of the interesting studies you have going on at the foundation. So one of them, I love the microbiome. We love the microbiome. So you're currently collaborating with San Francisco State University to study how nasal breathing affects the microbiome. So we're all yeah. going to geek out on this. So let's start yeah. with that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a fantastic one as well. I, I agree. Unfortunately, this one is 100% on hold right now. Actually, maybe like 90% on hold, we should say, due to COVID and all the labs being shut down. So this has been, we've been planning it for a while now. And so we were literally about to start. We had all the, we had needed all these fancy refrigerators and freezers and we had all of them. Anyway, when COVID started, but we will do it hopefully soon. And yeah, so this is a really great and cool study the concept is that we tend to know, and I, I know that you've talked about this a lot on your podcast listeners know this, that there is the connection between the gut microbiome and health and wellness, right? We also know that there's a connection, well, there's evidence of a connection between exercise and the gut microbiome. There's also a connection between ex exercise and the vagus nerve function. Vagus nerve helps regulate the autonomic nervous system, which I alluded to before without naming it, which is the balance between the sympathetic, the uh, fight, flight, or freeze response, and the parasympathetic, the rest and repair nervous systems. 
And so it's this whole kind of like triangle, a little web of connections, right? We have the gut microbiome and health and wellness. We have the gut, we have exercise and the vagus nerve. And we also have a connection between the vagus nerve and breathing. And what this study is trying to show or, or evaluate is, well, so because of those, that interweb, we are quite confident that there must be a connection between how we breathe and the gut and how the, the health of the gut microbiome. And so that's what this study is trying to evaluate. And it's doing this by having three different treatment arms. So one is aerobic exercise alone, and we're using stationary bikes. They're exercising, I think, 45 minutes. They can breathe however they want, and they'll probably breathe through their mouths. The other arm is aerobic exercise, the same exercise, but the participants are breathing through their nose. So nasal breathing during aerobic exercise. So like I said, we know there's a connection between exercise and the vagus nerve and nasal breathing and the vagus nerve and all of those things, and the, or exercise and the vagus nerve and the gut microbiome. So our hypothesis, hypothesis is that this arm might have the greatest, show the greatest benefits on the gut microbiome. We're also comparing it to another arm where uh, participants are just nasal breathing in a seated position. Wow. So it's really cool. It's really exciting. And then we're collecting sample samples and evaluating the effects. So we'll see. I love it. We'll definitely please keep us posted on, on that. We will. we will definitely share that with the Mind Body Green community. Yeah. So a couple other fascinating studies you guys are working on. I'll start with the school study. Yeah. Um, you know, getting kids. We have, I literally, you know, real, real time, I, I had to stop home earlier and our four-year-old was so hyper. I'm just like, yeah. let's do a timeout or we, we don't call a time. I forget what we call it now. Like, let's yeah. do some breathing. So like for me, yeah. I'm just like, oh my God, I wish I had Tanya before this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so tell me, tell us about the study and, and what are the best ways that we, we can get kids started with these breathing techniques, but we'll start with the study and, and talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like to joke that I wish I had this. I wish I had Tanya back when I first had kids also, because <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't know any of this until they were teenagers. But yeah, so the study, so the youth population is in a massive stress management crisis right now. Now we were before the COVID 19 pandemic hits, and it's just been exacerbated with this pandemic. So in youth, our primary outcome of interest is just reducing stress and not quote unquote, just uh, forget about that word is reducing stress and anxiety. And I'll just add that in the other populations, we're looking at more like in first responders, we're looking at different performance based outcomes. And in people with cardiometabolic conditions, we're looking more at different health outcomes associated with their conditions. So in youth, however, we really just want to reduce their stress levels. So what we're doing is we're doing a randomized control trial in one high school. It's a feasibility study at this point to see what's, what these kids are going to like, what they're going to tolerate, and then use the outcomes of this study to do a larger study in maybe 10, 15 different schools. We're looking at high school students right now, and then eventually we would look at other populations. What we're looking at is just three different breathing practices they all incorporate slow breathing through the nose with extended exhales. 
the concepts that we discussed earlier. And all that differs between these, the three different quote unquote breathing arms um, is the actual pace of that. And two of them, we're guiding them to have some pauses at, at the beginning and the end of the, each breath and then, or in the middle of each breath. And then in one of them, we're just guiding them on how to do it without having them breathe at a certain cadence. Like instead of saying breathe in for, I think you said you do breathe in for two and out for four or something. We're not saying that at all because everyone's different in this other arm. We're just guiding them. Okay. You're going to breathe slowly through your nose and we're teaching them diaphragmatic breathing and they can choose their own pace. So, um, we're literally just launched it a week ago. We're in the process of getting the students and the parents to sign consent forms. And we'll hopefully be collecting uh, data in the next, starting in the next week or two. It's a six week curriculum. It's designed to be done in the class, just five minutes, three times a week. So it's barely an interruption to the class time. And we're also evaluating the teacher's feedback so we can find out, you know, we really, like we said before with the breath, I mean, it's free, it's easy, it's accessible. And we really want to find something that teachers are, you know, thrilled to implement and it doesn't interrupt their curriculum. And if anything, it makes everyone more receptive to teaching, to the kids receptive to receiving the education and the the teacher, whether or not they do it, they're kind of, you can't, you, you kind of end up just unconsciously doing it, hearing someone else be guided. So we're hoping it'll, you know, really benefit everyone. So, so is that our homework for parents out there? Just try to get our kids in some sort of routine, a couple minutes a day, like, so that when they do have the, the full on meltdown, they know the practice of slow inhale, hold, slow exhale, hold longer and just work with them on it. Is that our homework that's going to make our lives easier? It really, I mean, it would make our lives easier. I will also add that I think that for kids, parents and kids, I mean, uh, the younger kids, at least they still listen to the parents. So the older kids, they might not listen. So I think that there's a couple approaches. One is the, f the first approach is to model by example, right? So when we're frustrated, we need the kids seeing us doing whatever it is that we're trying to help them learn how to do. So slowing down our breathing, closing our mouths, saying I need a moment, I need a, 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 a breath pause, whatever you want to call it in your household, and um, asking kids to do too much might backfire. So I think the simplest thing, even just having them breathe through their noses and just stop the talking for it, which requires that they stop talking. So that's good. And try to stop the moving. So, okay, great. I, I hear you. Let's, let's just calm down for one, one minute and let's maybe, so, so, so for some kids we can have them, we can have them count how many times they breathe that kind of engages them with something without having to tell them to breathe a certain way, which they might rebel against. I, who knows? Some kids, if you, you know, helping them breathe a certain way, like breathing more slowly as they exhale is helpful. Um, but if they're not ready for that, then just sitting down on the floor together with whatever everyone's yelling about, just on pause for, you know, one minute or 30 seconds or four minutes, whatever you decide. And then the way to help, I think, also have them want to do it themselves is and this is something that we're doing in the school study is in all of our studies is we have them fill out a little stress survey, like four questions right after the breathing practice and they do it before and after. And 
one of the reasons we're doing that is because it helps them see that they actually feel better right afterwards. So before talking about whatever the issue is at hand, even if it's just the parents saying, oh, I feel a little bit calmer now, do you? And the kid might or might not answer, but helping them understand that like gradually can help them mm, engage more with it in the future. Well, I'm going to try it tonight and uh, we'll report back to everyone. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you please. mentioned another study on first responders. I, I yeah. think it's with firefighters. Can yeah. you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. So we haven't done a full research study on for, with first responders yet, but we've done with firefighters. We did a little pilot program and I'm always very specific about the difference because a pilot program is when the site themselves come up with what they're doing and then we help analyze their data afterwards. Whereas a research study is prospective, it requires a whole ethical review, it's called internal review board review. And it's, it's very important because of working with human subjects, human participants, to just distinguish the difference. And that's one of my, one of my, you know, little, probably not necessary pet peeves. But anyways, so I'm really looking forward to doing some more clinical studies with firefighters. And what we've done so far is we worked with a fire department in Kentucky, very small active duty fire department, where they were starting to incorporate some breathing practices. And we helped them um, come up with some specific practices that they would do for and we did, this one was also six weeks for a certain amount of time. And we helped them determine what data to collect so that then we could do some analyses afterwards. And what we did is instead of having them sit quietly for five minutes to breathe, which we can do with high school students because they're sitting already and they're in a classroom, the concern from the assistant chief who was running this program was, well, they're just never going to do that if we're telling these, these men who are at least trying to be macho or think they're macho or whatever it is to, to sit quietly. And it was all men in this group, I will add. So what we did is we incorporated it into an active um, ergon rowing on, on an erg, a rowing machine that they have at the fire department. So they did 12 minutes of rowing while breathing slowly through their nose. And they did this three times a week for six weeks. And what we did is we asked them to row as hard as they can while breathing only at this pace. So I think it was um, six seconds per breath. So three seconds in, three seconds out. And I don't want to like say that as a People are going to, I mean, anyone's welcome to try that, but we didn't, that's not any particular, any evidence-backed protocol. We just decided that we know slow breathing and we know aerobics. So we did that and they, we, we did find that their aerobic capacity improved over the six weeks as measured by their average wattage while breathing slowly. So for the first couple weeks, most of the firefighters we're like, this is awful. They're not, <laughs> this is awful. I can't breathe. But then gradually they got used to, to breathing slowly and rowing at the same time. And they managed to improve their capacity. And then we also found that their aerobic capacity, well, another measure of their aerobic capacity improved. So we did a firefighter activity simulation drill. So it's this drill where they're doing these exercises in a gym wearing their SCBA units, all of their protective gear and their air units. And we did this before and after. And they did improve their reps, the number of reps they did while doing these exercises. Now, what we didn't get is, so what happened, we learned so much from this program. And the main thing is that it's really hard 
to do this kind of thing in an active duty fire department. So of the 18 men who wanted to do it, only 10 actually continued because they were just, it's just too busy. Um, and they, and then even of those 10, most of the data that we wanted to collect on the stress outcomes, we couldn't collect. They, they just didn't manage to, to do it. So when we do some future programs, we're going to have more systems up set in place and have a designated person who can help them with all of that, with the data collection. A lot more work needs to be done, but we all, we know some breathing, breathing exercises just like that one or others that improve one's CO2 tolerance, improve one's aerobic capacity are going to help these firefighters uh, do two primary things. One is manage their stress response when they're in emergency situations. The calmer they can breathe, the better they can think, the better they can respond. And then the other big thing, and this is will hopefully be our primary outcome of a future study, is to manage their oxygen consumption, which is what they're using in their air, their their air, their units. And if they can reduce their oxygen, if they're not having to like gasp so desperately for breath, and they can even get one extra minute. So these tanks often they're designed to last like maybe 40 minutes at regular conditions, but in emergency situations, it can be as short as like 10 or 12 minutes. So if they can get an extra minute out of those, it might mean an extra life saved or, you know, wow. whatever it is. So that is something that we feel really strongly. We absolutely can have an impact on. Wow. So I know so much of the, the research you're doing is work in progress. I'm curious, yeah. what's like the most surprising finding or insight that you've come across so far? Yeah, that's a great question. God. Or open-ended question, or maybe there's not a definitive insight or answer, but it was, yeah. an, oh, wow, we need to look at, we don't know about this yet, but we need to look at this. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't really know off the top of my head, but I will say that a couple things. One is the work with car people with cardiometabolic conditions. We haven't really initiated, mm, take that back. We did a very small focus group a couple years ago with people um, with an autoimmune condition that severely compromised their lung flexibility. And that was incredible. These people found this 15, 20 minutes of a very basic, simple breathing practice to be it felt really good. This is just a really a fun story. It's not necessarily something that was surprising necessarily, but one of the participants afterwards in the facility we were in, this was when we actually could meet in facilities, the bathroom was upstairs. And afterwards he came and he said, you know what? That's the first time in years that I was able to go up, up the stairs without being completely out of breath. So that was really rewarding. And what I was going to say about people with cardiometabolic and, and autoimmune conditions is that when I first started this work, I hadn't realized how tight the connection is between how we breathe and all of these other functional capacities that we have. So that's an area I'm really excited to, to dive into. And then the other thing, I, I guess, is just how easy breathing is, yet how challenging it can be to um, help people see that it's so easy to incorporate into their daily lives. Even in a research study where we have 
where a fire department or a school where the teacher or whoever it is is saying, okay, we're going to do this. There's that initial resistance very often because it just feels whatever. I don't know. There's lots of reasons. So um, I think it's really exciting getting more research out there because half of the reason I want to do, well, not half, but, you know, one reason I feel that more research is needed is to help with preventing the naysayers, not preventing them, but helping them see that it's science backed and evidence backed and not just because it feels good for some small you know, percent of the population. So you mentioned health conditions that people are dealing with and how breath work can help and a very real and new health condition that many are suffering from are those dealing with COVID and the you yeah. know, long hauler, long hauler syndrome, if you will, and that there are a lot of people who have all sorts of pulmonary problems, shortness of breath and, and so on. And I'm curious, is there, is it as simple as just inhaling through, through the nose or is there a specific treatment in the works for those who are experiencing some health issues because of, of COVID? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Right now there's, it, we were hoping to do a study that would actually evaluate some of that. And right now we, we haven't been able to get that going just for human resources and resources reasons. How, so I don't have anything to share that's evidence-backed. What I do have is a little, some information to share that's just based on anecdotal evidence. Sure. So, well, ev- anecdotal evidence and just kind of what we know about breathing science. So starting with the latter, what we know about breathing science and about COVID is that for sure practicing some intentional breathing practice besides just trying to breathe through our noses and more slowly on a regular basis, day 24-7, doing some slow, relaxed nasal breathing that's also from our diaphragm so one can put their hands on the just below the rib cage where the diaphragm is and make sure that when we inhale, the that area is kind of expanding out and that when we exhale, that, that, that area is kind of contracting in. Um, some slow diaphragmatic breathing like that can help improve oxygen saturation throughout the body, period, and can improve the health of the alveoli, which are the parts of the, the lung where the, ox- the gas exchange occurs. There's some research by Dr. Bernardi out of Italy about the impact of, this, of various breathing practices on the health of the alveoli. And what happens is that if there's just these little sacs and at the bottom of the lungs, if we're not breathing in the, into the diaphragm, these little sacs kind of shrivel up and they're less, they're used less. And so improving lung health, there's no doubt that if we can improve our lung health, it can help. I, I don't, we don't know what it can help with COVID, but it's going to be a good thing to improve our, our lung health. So that's why breathing into the diaphragm and doing that slowly so that we're really kind of using all of our, our alveoli, all of our lung tissues really help. So the other can help with our lung health, which should be a good thing for anything COVID related. The other thing with shortness of breath, just from anecdotal evidence from people I know who work directly with individuals who are kind of breathing therapists, should we say, that people who are short of breath, one kind of surprising way of helping address that is to breathe 
in on the to do some intentional seated relaxed or lying down breathing practices again through the nose using diaphragmatic breathing where we're breathing in and we're and we're just stopping at about three quarters of the way full three three quarters of the way in so or two thirds or just not breathing all the way to the top of the breath and doing that for whether it's five breaths or 10 breaths or 20 or even three it can feel uncomfortable and that's it actually replicates the feeling of shortness of breath because that feeling is when you feel like you can't get enough air into the top but doing that actually intentionally and in a relaxed you know manner and and setting can actually help open up the lungs and so that then when one does try to breathe in fully it actually release, relieves that feeling. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it, it's really, I've tried it myself. Some people, if you're feeling even just anxious, and you're like, oh, I can't breathe well. And just intentionally preventing full inhales for a series of inhales can actually help relieve that feeling. So going back to when I asked, what do you find fascinating? Any insights were yeah. fascinating. I, I, I'll provide mine, which I, I found it yeah. in preparing for the interview, that. which we found yeah. on your Instagram, the yeah. foundation's Instagram. There was this post called to breathe yourself thin. Yeah. I was like, wow, yeah. that's interesting. So like, yeah. let's talk about wait, breath for weight loss. Like mm-hmm. talk about the connection between breath and metabolism. Like, yeah. Yeah, this was a really interesting article. So it was done by a couple researchers out of Australia. Um, the lead researcher is Ruben Merman. And if you see, look on that Instagram post, there's an, one of the TED Talks that he did. He has a picture of him surfing. So I love that. I'm a surfer. And he's, got, he's catching this great wave. And he shows that picture to show how he had a little pot belly that he really wanted to get rid of. And he lost the weight. And he, was, he asked, well, where did this weight go? And if anyone looks up the actual scientific paper, they'll see a lot of mathematical and kind of scientific calculations. And what they found is that, yes, they lose the weight, people lose weight. And how, where does, where is it going? Is that actually it's getting excreted as carbon dioxide by breathing out. And the reason of that is that our, our, breathing and our weight loss is actually unlocking these trapped carbon cells that is that's in the fat and when that gets released that is how the weight loss actually happens so technically and when that gets released where it gets released by by our breathing it out and so that's kind of where the that's the the gist of it and that's where this title of breathe yourself thin came from i i i I, I never thought about it that way. And you're not yeah. pooping it out. You're not doing a clean, you're not cleansing it out. I love the perspective of you're breathing it out. And yeah. wow, that I have to like think about that for a while, but yeah. it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's not that we can only breathe to lose weight. It's that the movement, the exercise, and then the diet, all these things, they help those changes help release the carbon dioxide from those fat cells, which helps change the whole structure of those cells and helps the weight loss the, yeah the psa is not enjoy the bowl of m&ms just do your yeah, do your exactly. kundalini after or whatever breath work you subscribe to not all right. good right, uh, right 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 so in closing i'm curious what else are you working on what are you interested in what are you paying attention to like where, where do you, what's going on in your world where do you think the the future is going 
Yeah. So in terms of HHPF, really looking forward to kind of doing a ser- doing series of studies in certain populations so that we can develop a very solid evidence base in those populations and then use that information to develop to us low cost and then hopefully to the users no cost evidence-backed tools and programs and that they can then use to help them with whatever outcomes it, they're, you know, they're trying to address. So, um, and those, and part of the goal would be, even if we're developing some kind of quote unquote tools that involve video instruction or whatever, is to teach people how to do some simple things that then of course they can do anytime, anywhere on their own with or, with or, with or without whatever video or audio or instruction that we provide. So that's what we're looking forward to doing at HHPF. And then as a side note, one of the things that I got learned about last fall that just literally, that's nothing to do with breathing, but to do with health and wellness and really blew my mind was that there's research on antioxidant supplementation and the impact of, and so in other words, mostly vitamin C and vitamin E and the impact of that supplementation on the benefits of exercise. And there's very little research on this. And I can look up to see, I think it's like Ristow is the name of the researcher. Yeah, Ristow. And so it started, Michael Ristow um, from Germany. And the, the research started, I think, in like the late 2009 or 10. And essentially the concept is that um, these antioxidants, if we're taking them, and the belief is that it's similar for anti-inflammatories, if we're taking them at any point around exercising, and I actually, I shouldn't even mention the timing because they don't know yet about the timing, but they, it's, it's possible that this affects the, the results. But if we're taking antioxidants in high doses, which most of those like vitamin C, vitamin E, it's almost impossible to get in a very small dose. Um, what happens is that it tells the body that it doesn't need to have an oxidative stress response to exercise. And so when we exercise, there's no oxidative stress response or less, okay? And so then what happens is that we don't get the full antioxidant benefits of the exercise. Isn't that interesting? So high dose vitamin C or E so high dose, so like a gram of vitamin C yeah, or a gram yeah. of E before yeah. exercise negates the benefit of exercise. I will remove the, the comment about before exercise because just in general, but we don't know the timing. But yes, yeah. it negates the antioxidant benefits of exercise. So because what happens normally, if it's after? Yeah, we don't know. Got it. More, more research needs to be done. But I'm, I'm hopeful that if it's after, then it, and then it's another 24 hours before you do exercise, then it's okay. But isn't that interesting? Yeah. And it's the same concept for anti-inflammatories. So if you're taking anti... So, so, the, so the thing is that with exercise, with antioxidants and inflammation, it creates this oxidative stress, right? We exercise, we, we get inflamed. It's like muscle building. You tear down the muscle, but then the whole... And you have oxidative stress. But what our bodies are designed to do is to then rebound just a little stronger than it was before with a little less inflammation, with a little more muscle, with a little more antioxidants in our bodies than before the exercise. So that little, those little increases every time 
I mean, that, that's why there's benefits of exercise, right? But those micro, you know, kind of level increases get eliminated when we're taking these supplements. And so those extra benefits of exercise. And these authors hypothesize that it's similar with anti-inflammatories. And then the other thing that they found is that it also reduces the, uh, the benefits on insulin sensitivity that exercise has. Fascinating. Well, very fascinating. As someone who gets blood work quarterly, wears a yeah. whoop, a Fitbit, and an aura, yeah. and, and is a su- total supplement nerd, I am yeah. fascinated. So please keep me posted on that one. I will. I will. <laughs> uh, I will. That's why I was fascinated too, because I'm exactly the same. I was taking all these, you know, supplements, and I'm like, yeah, maybe it's fine for me to rethink them a little bit. Yeah, and it's just yeah, keep me posted. I I, I am constantly monitoring all of those things that yeah. you just mentioned, Tanya. Thank you so much. We love the work you're doing with the foundation. Breathwork, time to get it front and center for everyone. So thank you. Thank you, Jason. It was such a pleasure. I really appreciate it.